All right, let's turn to Mark's Gospel again. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. I want to continue working through the book, and we come to a new section, at least a new emphasis from my perspective as we uh, get into the book. Uh, This morning, we talked about Jesus and his perspectives on the Sabbath, uh, the day of rest for the uh, children of Israel, and that was kind of fun. I I feel like a lot of the Sunday morning services recently, there's been this fairly complicated application to make, and so I just want to thank you for your graciousness with your pastor uh, as I try to, to guide you. I recognize that Christians believe different things about the Sabbath. Good people think a little bit differently about it. Uh, but, um, you know, it was very interesting, of course, again, to see Jesus' authority on display, to see him uh, as Lord of the Sabbath, and then uh, also to see the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees looking at Jesus closely, watching him to see how he will or if he will ever make a mistake. And all along the way, they're the true Sabbath violators. They're the ones scheming to kill Jesus. Uh, As we come to uh, Mark chapter 3, this evening we'll be looking at verses 7 through verse 20. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, what I'm going to call the growing popularity of Jesus. The growing popularity Uh, This is the second significant section in the book of Jesus' early ministry. One of the observations I made this week is, um, you know, both of these sections start in the same way. Uh, So the first section starts in Mark 1.14. It starts with a summary, a brief summary of Jesus' ministry and effectiveness as a preacher of the gospel. And then he moves from there in Mark 1 to go right to a place where he starts Uh, selecting apostles or disciples. And so in Mark 1, how many disciples did Jesus choose? Open book quiz. Mark 1, how many disciples did Jesus call? He said, come and follow me. Four, okay? In this section, we're going to see that he appoints eight others to join them. He'll appoint the 12 apostles. And so I think Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starts out both of these major sections, these first two sections, in the same way. Summary of Jesus' life and ministry, and then this calling of the disciples, both in chapter 1 and then later on in chapter uh, 3 here. Well, the section we're going to be looking at the next two weeks goes from verse 7, the whole way to the end of the chapter in verse uh, 35. And this section describes the swelling number of people who were gathered, gathering around Jesus in his Galilean ministry. As a matter of fact, at one point uh, in this chapter, uh, things get so crowded, Jesus asks for a boat so that he can go out into shallow water and avoid the mass of the people who are following him in the wilderness. Have you ever been in a crowded situation before? Normally, those situations occur indoors, right? I can think of a few places where I actually felt like I was almost at a panic level once in a stadium being crushed with a bunch of people. And I mean, I was, we couldn't move for a long time. Very crowded. But I can never say that that occurred outside for me or that it occurred in a country setting outside, no less. 
And so as we start into this text, I want you to imagine for a moment an aerial picture that would be snapped above Jesus while he was journeying throughout Galilee. Now, this is a bad picture. It's not a great picture. You see a boat in the water and a bunch of heads, sort of. Um, Imagine a a picture like this, and in in this chapter, in Mark chapter 3, what I believe Mark is doing is he is zooming in on different groups that make up the crowd who is following Jesus. Again, the emphasis will be on Jesus' growing popularity. Now, in Mark doing this and kind of drawing our attention to these different groups of people who are right around or following Jesus, he will not only tell us where the group is from, where they're coming from, he will also describe why they are there. That is, what reason did the people have to follow Jesus? And so tonight and next Sunday morning, we're going to look at these five groups, by the way, this is a made-up picture, all right? This is not a, like a real picture, okay? And these aren't like the real groups, just for visual effect, just in case you were wondering. Uh, but we're going to look at these five groups. Tonight we'll look at three of them. Uh, next week we'll look at verses 22 through 35 and two other groups who are following Jesus. So uh, first, we, there were large groups from the surrounding areas following Christ. And we can see this in verses 7 through 10. Uh, So let me read these verses with you. You can just follow along in your Bible. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, uh, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to Uh, Have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Uh, So uh, one of the things I want you to observe in this part of the text is, did you notice in the ESV at least how many times the word crowd is used? So it's used in verse 7, it's used in verse 8, that reflects one Greek word. It's used in verse 9, different Greek word, but a synonym, and it's that Greek word in verse 9 that Mark will use throughout the rest of the book, and he's going to keep mentioning crowds repeatedly in this section. So if you look down in your Bible, for instance, in verse 20, a little bit later on, it says, then when he went home, the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. In 3.32, he says it again, and a crowd was sitting around him. Really, throughout Mark's gospel, about 36 times or so, you're going to see the crowds being mentioned. But here in this text, his first emphasis would be on the crowds that are gathering around Jesus at this point in his Galilean ministry, and the crowds come from a surprisingly vast or large region around Jesus. So Mark actually gives seven geographical areas where people came to follow Christ and form this crowd. Uh, The region started, of course, around Capernaum where Jesus is and Galilee. And so I know you can't really uh, probably see the map very well, but they start up here in Galilee and Capernaum. Okay. And then he describes uh, after that the, the province of Judea down here in the south and its leading city, Jerusalem. There's no way you can see that, but maybe Judea. 
It's a leading city of Jerusalem. He says, crowds were coming up here to where Jesus were from all of Galilee and Capernaum, from Judea or Judea and Jerusalem, from Idumea in the south, which is the Negev. So way down south, okay? This is a mixed population. Probably some of them are Jews. Many of them may not be be Israelite people, but anyway, there, there are people flocking to Jesus, coming to Jesus to see him and to be healed from Idumea down here in the south. He says that they're also coming from beyond the Jordan River, that's east of the Jordan River. People are coming over to where Jesus is. And then he also goes up here to the north into Phoenicia. You see Tyre up here and Sidon is off the, off the map. When you go that far north, you're dealing with Gentile populations. So what uh, Mark is telling us is early in Jesus's ministry, Crowds were flocking from all around Capernaum and Galilee to come and see Jesus. Jesus' ministry was growing wider and wider in his reach. His popularity was increasing, and large crowds came to be near him. Uh, And so his, his growing popularity leads Jesus to issue a strange request to the disciples, at least initially. Jesus asked them to procure a boat for him in verses 9 and 10. So look in your Bible, verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Okay, so if you didn't keep reading, you'd be like, what is going on? However, it says, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And so Mark explains here that the boat is necessary to prevent Jesus from, and I'll use his words in modern English here, from being crushed and being pressed, uh, or because they were pressing around him to touch him. And so I, I like how one commentator described, he said, the boat is like a mobile, mobile pulpit for Jesus then. Okay? It seems as if, though, that the crowds are coming because they really want to experience a miracle or healing. And so Jesus is going he's gonna to pull back, be in the boat, and he's going to teach them from the small fishing boat. One of the interesting observations I make about the next few chapters is if you went through chapters 4 and 5 and you just kept looking into chapter 6 as well, and you look for the word boat, you'll see a lot of Jesus' ministry in the next few chapters are going to occur on a boat. Okay, on a boat. But here, uh, he wants the boat so that he can teach the people and not be crushed by the people. Uh, ben Witherington explains this well, the purpose of the boat. He said, if Jesus were to teach from the boat, then people would not be able to crowd and crush or even touch him, providing he was just far enough out in the water so that he could be easily reached. So the crowds are so dense, Jesus needs a boat for self-preservation. But uh, looking closely at this text, I want to point out again that I think that they're following him for the wrong reasons. Many in the crowd, these large groups. You can see uh, traces uh, of this. Uh, Look at the end of verse 8. It says, When the great crowd heard all that he was what? If you got an ESV, you can say it out loud. Other versions, I don't know what it says right now. All that he was doing, not speaking, not all that he was saying, although that might be included in his doing, the crowds 
are attracted to Jesus primarily for his doing, his actions. Uh, But then it becomes even clearer to me, verse 10, he wants this boat lest they should crush him, the end of verse 9, and here's the reason. For, why would Jesus think he's going to be crushed other than all the people around him? For he had healed many, healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And so it seems to me that the crowds are primarily attracted to Jesus because of what he can do for them. The miracles, the healings. He'd healed many who had diseases, and so they're pressing around him and trying to touch him. I think this also becomes obvious with the crowds as you continue to read through Mark's gospel. As I said, I think from this point on, I found uh, 36 times the word crowd is used, and what you'll see in those occurrences. Now, don't worry, I'm I'm not going to go through all 36 tonight with you, okay? I promise. But if we were to go through those, you would see that in just about every one of the occurrences of the mention of the crowds gathering around Jesus, they're doing so for self-centered reasons. So that by the time you get to the end of the gospel, this was fascinating to me. I'd never seen this before. You get into Mark chapter 15. From that point on, every mention of the crowd is negative. At that point, it's as if Jesus can do very little for them anymore. And so now they're pressing to kill him. And so as we look at this first group, they crowds, they turn against Jesus later. And so the crowds are following Jesus for his miracles, for his healings. And if they don't have an ailment to be healed, they're probably just wanting to see another healing. Okay, and so uh, many in the crowds are following for the wrong reason. That leads to the second group, verses 11 and 12, and so we look there in our Bible. Second, uh, he is again attracting unclean spirits around him, so look at verse 11. It says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So uh, sometimes in large gatherings, people follow or are there for a whole bunch of different reasons, and sometimes for unfriendly reasons. Right? This is true in politics, and unfortunately, with the climate and culture of our world today in our country, we can see this very often. A political leader will, will gather a large group of people and begin speaking, and then someone will, without fail, stand up and start ranting and yelling against the person. Okay, So sometimes you have a large group of people, and you shouldn't just assume that they're all there because they support the speaker. I think the same is true of Jesus. These unclean spirits are gathering around as well. And so in verses 11 and 12, we see that people with unclean spirits are also in the crowd. And so when these spirits sense the presence of Jesus, the text says that they throw the human being down in front of Christ and they cry out Jesus' identity. You are the Son of God. Again, we don't know exactly why unclean spirits would do this. Is this just like free evangelism to the crowds, or what is this? I suggested in Mark chapter 1 that this might be a way 
that an unclean spirit might attempt to master Jesus by saying everything he knew about Jesus and his precise identity. That could be the case again. Regardless, Jesus decides that he doesn't want, he doesn't want demons to be the ones saying who he is. I mean, this is definitely the wrong source for the proclamation of his deity. Uh, it could also be the wrong time. I mean, we, we don't know exactly what is going on and why a demon would do this. But I want to suggest as well that the demons are there. The unclean spirits are inhabiting human beings to, uh, in a sense, to stop him, to stop him. And so Jesus responds by silencing them. Look at verses 11 and 12, especially uh, verse 12 again says, and he, that's Jesus, strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus, basically like he did in Mark 1, Mark 1, the, the translation I give to what he did with the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue is, muzzle it and come out of him. Close your mouth and come out of him. And so Jesus orders these unclean spirits not to say anything, not to make him known to anyone else, and so I, I like how one older commentator, uh, William Lane, he, he describes this. He says, in this encounter, authority confronts authority and the unclean spirits are absolutely silenced. They're silenced. And so you have these different groups. You might, if we had the opportunity to see that picture or experience Jesus and his ministry, you might think like everything is just going tremendous. Thousands, tens of thousands of people gathered around. But actually, the first two groups we look at, we say, well, you know, maybe not. You've got a group, a large masses of people coming from all around who are simply there to be healed. They're pressing on him, making demands of him. And then you've got these unclean spirits who are there as well. And that, that leads us to the third group. Uh, the third group that is established here in this text is those would be following him, and that would be the 12 apostles. And so let's uh, read verses 13 through 20, and uh, we'll, we'll finish up this group. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, the crowd gathered again so that they, so that they, could not even eat. So as we go through this last section, these verses, Jesus goes up into a mountain to get away from the crowds and he draws a few of his followers after him. He draws them closer to him and, and it's at this point in the chapter where I think you begin to realize, remember I said there are five groups, that some of these groups are going to be insiders, some of them are going to be outsiders. Some of them are going to be for Jesus, some of them are going to be against Jesus in the larger crowd. And so uh, what's interesting to me, from my perspective, these 12 
will be just about the only ones that Mark describes in all of chapter three who will be really for Jesus. Be positive, at least in, in, in the chapter itself as we see it. So the 12 apostles will become insiders, whereas the crowds, the scribes later on, the Pharisees, and, and some other more surprising people, some other people you think should be followers of Jesus, they will not be considered insiders in this text. They'll be outsiders. And so let me just quickly work our way through these verses. First, verses uh, 13 through 15, Jesus establishes the 12 apostles. Uh, the narrative starts out with this, and uh, we see that um, he is, Jesus is going to call them, and he is going to do so for two purposes. Um, it says uh, there in verse 14, and he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority uh, to cast out demons. And so the two purposes that Jesus will call these 12 men to be apostles or disciples is that they might be with him, that is, that they might be near him, and that he might send them out to preach. I, I would say this is preaching the gospel, preach the good news, and that they might also be able to cast out demons. And so, so these men will have the actual ability to do that. The text says that Jesus will invest some of his authority to them. Remember, that was the theme of the first two chapters, the authority of Jesus. We saw it over and over and over again. Now he's going to call 12 men to himself, the 12 apostles. He's going to do it so they can be with him and so that they can preach and cast out demons using the same authority uh, that, that Jesus has. And so I would suggest that the 12 are called here to help him. Again, uh, as I said before, I think that this is the only group of the five that are there for righteous reasons. At least I would say most of them, uh, that is. Most of them are there for righteous reasons. One or two of them, especially one of them, uh, will, will be seen to be a traitor later. Uh, so uh, just in a moment of application, let me just say that this, this is probably a good warning to us. Okay, uh, It's a warning for us not to judge the strength of a church or a ministry by numbers, okay? Just because Jesus had all of these people following him didn't mean that all of the people were with him. And so even if you have numbers, not everyone is probably there for the right reasons, okay? And so the disciples are the only ones, of course, who are going to pretty much, for the most part, stay with him or be a part of helping him. Although I was thinking before the sermon uh, this morning, right as we were singing, I was thinking, you know, that picture I showed before of Jesus, you know, uh, made up picture of Jesus with the, 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 the thousands of people around him in the boat and how popular he is there. That's such a, a contrast to the end of the book when Jesus is on a cross and how many people are there with him then. Okay. And so you see that uh, just because there are a lot of numbers doesn't mean it's necessarily uh, the right thing. And so, um, so Mark uh, shows that Jesus appoints the 12. And then in verses 16 through 19, he lists them out for us, which is helpful. He gives the name of all the 12s. This is one of the two or three disciple lists 
uh, apostle list in the New Testament. I, I won't go through all of them. He, he lists their names. He gives some of their nicknames, Simon and Peter and James and John, the sons of thunder. Um, I will say that as you read down through this list of names, you see that this is kind of a hodgepodge of different types of men from different callings. You've got, you've got fishermen and you've got uh, authorities in some senses or another. You've got, uh, some, uh, you've got one man who was formally committed to Roman rule, a tax collector who'd be really committed to Roman authorities and making sure they receive their money. And then you have, from my count, you have two formally radically committed to Roman overthrow. You've got Simon, who's called the Zealot. Okay, and I know there's some translation, or uh, there's a variant issue there, but I think Zealot is the better translation. You've got Simon, the Zealot, who would be radically committed to nationalism in Israel and establishing the kingdom of Israel. And then you've got Judas Iscariot. And I think the, the name Iscariot, while there, there are different possible explanations for it, I think it probably is, means that he was one of the Sicarii or dagger men. Uh, one commentator said it this way. He says, uh, this label indicates he was part of the, the dagger men, the extreme faction and hitmen among the revolutionary party. And so before Judas's uh, selection as an apostle, he's radically committed to Roman, uh, to overthrowing Roman authority. Uh, regardless, G- Jesus brings all these men together to form the apostles, and they are to be near him. Now, after forming them in verses six, uh, the, the first part of this passage, and then Mark listing them, there's one other comment that I actually think is very interesting in verse 20. Uh, we see in verse 20 that after forming this group of insiders, Jesus takes them back to a home, and he does something with them. Look at verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Here, Jesus probably returns to the home of Simon Peter in Capernaum, although we don't know what house he's actually going to, but maybe Simon Peter's home in Capernaum with the 12 apostles. This time, however, when he goes back to Capernaum, he's in the home, the crowds gather almost immediately, and they become so dense or thick that the disciples are not even able to eat. As I was reflecting on that this afternoon, I thought maybe this explains why a few texts before they're walking through a farmer's field on the Sabbath and they're just plucking grain because they can't even eat in their home. Okay, and so you've got this happening and Mark describing more of the nature of those who followed Christ, the crowds here kind of pressing again in the home. So tonight we've seen the nature of some of those who followed Christ, uh, crowds, demons, and disciples. Uh, I'm sure that, that, that these descriptions that Mark gives here will help his earliest readers a great deal as they face Roman persecution. Remember uh, what I said at the beginning of the book, uh, I believe that the Gospel of Mark is reflective of the memoirs of Simon Peter on the life of Christ. And that John Mark writes this down, records this primarily for Roman believers who are enduring persecution in the cause of Christ. And so as Roman believers facing persecution, they must understand that although large numbers flocked to Christ, many of them were not there for righteous purposes. 
And most of them, most of that huge crowd that pressed on Jesus actually will reject him later. And so I think to Roman Christians who might feel isolated and all alone, they would see, you know, this is perhaps how Jesus must have felt. Started big. It's crazy. Lots of people pressing. Many needs. But most of these people reject him. I think this passage is a great warning to us as well. I think the whole Gospel of Mark is. As we consider our own lives, you know, we, we live in a time when it is maybe not popular to be a believer, but it's at least in some circles admirable or tolerable to be a believer in our culture and in our country today. However, uh, I suspect that if God would send a wave of persecution upon the church in the United States of America today, that many people who fill our churches would quickly drop away. Quickly drop away. And so as we look at this and we think of the excitement and of the large crowds and recognize that many of them rejected, I think we must decide to follow even if our friends and perhaps some of our own family members would decide to fall away or fall back in times of persecution. We must decide by God's grace to bear trial or abuse for him and for his name if necessary. And so I'd like to close in this way. I want to close by praying tonight that we would be able and ready to face challenge and persecution if it were to come our way. If we look at the groups who are following Jesus, imagine yourself there. And imagine if the persecution, imagine if the threats, putting your own neck on the line, came. Would you remain? Would you be faithful? And so pray that God would give us the grace to do that. And then I want to take a moment as I close in a pastoral prayer and pray for brothers and sisters across the world right now who are facing severe persecution, perhaps like Mark's original readers, and are making this, the decision. And I'm gonna, am I going to stick with Jesus? Am I going to stick with Jesus? Am I going to bear persecution like him? Or am I going to abandon one of the things we do on Wednesday nights for our prayer meeting, if you come to our prayer meeting, is every Wednesday night at the bottom of our prayer bulletin, we put an update regarding the persecuted church. And so I like to, to read these, I like to think through these and pray as a focus for different Christians in different nations who are bearing much persecution for the cause of Christ. And so I'm going to take two of those this evening, two or three of those, and I want to pray for some of our persecuted brothers or sisters right now who are considering, deciding whether they should take a stand for Christ or whether they would pull away. So let's, let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for Mark chapter 3. I thank you for what we saw about great crowds following you, but perhaps for the wrong reason. I thank you, Lord, for what we saw about unclean spirits and how Jesus mastered them. I thank you as well what we saw about the purpose of the 12 being selected. These would be drawn nearer to him so they might be near him, so that they might preach the good news, so that they might cast out demons by his authority. 
And Father, as I think of Mark's original audience, the Roman believers who would hear these differing reports of all the people starting to fall away from Jesus, I would pray for other brothers and sisters across our world who are bearing persecution and trial for the name of Jesus Christ today. I pray for those first in uh, Kazakhstan, in Central Asia, who are bearing much persecution to be called a Christian in that land. They're being persecuted by their own government. They're being persecuted by the, the, the vast Muslim population. These believers, uh, Father, and you, you know, they're under constant surveillance. Constant surveillance by the government so that they might not proclaim the name of God, name of Christ. They're being persecuted greatly for the cause of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them today. I, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of believers are in this country trying to bear the name of Christ, but I pray, Lord, that you would enable them to stand. I pray that they'd be willing to be counted among the followers of Jesus instead of walking away from him, drifting away. I pray that they would embrace Christ and try to serve him faithfully. Lord, I think as well of Christians in Ethiopia. Lord, as I consider Christians in Ethiopia, they as well are bearing persecution from multiple sources. The government is afflicting them uh, for their testimony in Christ. Islam, radical pockets of Islam are uh, uh, attacking Christians, secularism, uh, even the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is persecuting true followers of Jesus Christ. And Father, as all of these people are trying to make life intolerable for anyone who would claim the name of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, I would pray for my, my brothers and sisters in Ethiopia. I pray, dear Father, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them resolve. May they see the faithfulness of Jesus. At one point in Jesus' ministry, it would have been popular to be Jesus, thousands of people around, but eventually he'll be all by himself on a cross. I pray for my Ethiopian brothers and sisters as they, as they consider bearing their cross for Christ. I pray that you would give them strength and you would enable them to do so. I pray for Christians that I know and have heard of in Turkey who are facing constant pressure to recant of their testimony for Jesus Christ. Other Christians in India, especially in northern India, who are facing severe persecution for the name of Christ. Father, some of these villages, if, if you even just declare that you're a Christian, you'd be persecuted or killed. And so, Father, I pray that our persecuted brothers and sisters all across the world on this globe at this time would be encouraged by Christ's faithful example. Lord, enable them to be faithful to the end. And if they're martyrs for your name, I pray that your name would be honored and glorified and that you would use it for your, for your kingdom and your glory. And then, Father, I pray for all of those people who claim Colonial Baptist Church as their home. Lord, I would pray that if persecution, ridicule, and trial would come, that it would not be proven of this church that there are many who were false. Or as we consider our opportunity 
to bear the testimony of Christ and to stand like Christ in the midst of persecution and trial, I pray that you would enable us. And I pray for other churches in our country, Lord. There are many pews filled on Sunday mornings with people who are not genuine followers of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would grip them. I pray that if persecution comes, you would convict them and that they would truly believe. Lord, enable us to stand for you. I pray that we'd be willing to stand with Christ even if persecution comes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.